Hello, I'm your host, Anna Danino, and welcome to episode 9 of the Crime Bistro podcast. This show gazes into the thrillingly twisted world of true crime, examining real cases while we share in a passion for crime and coffee alike. For this episode, I'm enjoying a hot hibiscus tea, so grab yourself a fresh brew, and let's get into the controversial case of The Staircase. The case, known as The Staircase, follows the death of Kathleen Peterson on December 9th, 2001, and the subsequent legal battle that occupied the next decades of her husband Michael Peterson's life, who immediately fell under suspicion. Kathleen was found dead in her home at the bottom of their back staircase, coated by and surrounded with blood spatters that led investigators to believe the scene was much too violent to have been caused by a fall down the stairs. This case is extremely controversial, and so many are still split on whether or not Michael had a hand in Kathleen's death on that cold December morning. To give some background on Kathleen, she was born Kathleen Hunt on February 21st of 1953 in Greensboro, North Carolina. Growing up, she was very smart, graduating from J.P. McCaskey High School in Lancaster, Pennsylvania at the top of her class, which was comprised of 473 students. She was the first woman to be accepted into the School of Engineering at Duke University, so that was a huge accomplishment for her. And at Duke, she earned her Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering, as well as a Master's Degree in Mechanical Engineering. After college, she went on to hold several high-level executive positions at both pharmaceutical and IT companies, and she also received multiple awards throughout her life for her leadership skills. She was very well-liked and an active member of her community, serving on the board of Durham Arts Council, and was known as a generous philanthropist. Her first husband was named Fred Atwater, and they were married in 1977, having one daughter together who they named Caitlin. The two decided to get divorced in 1985 after being married for eight years, and there didn't seem to be much animosity with the divorce, rather the relationship just fizzled out over time. Kathleen seemed to be doing well as a single woman, however, she was introduced to Michael Peterson fairly quickly after the divorce was final, as he was a father of another child from Caitlin's school. Michael Peterson was born on October 23rd of 1943 near Nashville, Tennessee. He also attended Duke University, graduating with a degree in political science, and after leaving Duke, he took law school classes at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He worked as an analyst for the Department of Defense, where he primarily researched justifications for the U.S. military involvement in Vietnam. Michael met his first wife in 1965, and her name was Patricia, after which he joined the Marine Corps, serving briefly in Vietnam. He was discharged after suffering an injury in a car accident, which left him permanently disabled. Him and Patricia moved to Germany after this, and the couple had two sons while they were there, named Clayton and Todd. Patricia spent her time in Germany working as an elementary school teacher at the military base where she met her best friend, Elizabeth Ratliff. Elizabeth and her husband, George, had two daughters, Margaret and Martha, and the two families spent a significant amount of time together. In 1983, George passed away suddenly from a heart attack, and in the wake of this, the Petersons tried their best to be there for Elizabeth and the girls, especially Michael. In the wake of the tragic death of George, Elizabeth passed away as well in 1985 from an intracerebral hemorrhage, secondary to a blood clotting disorder that she also suffered from. So now that Margaret and Martha had lost both of their parents, Michael Peterson became their legal guardian. After all of these things transpired, Michael and Patricia divorced, and it was finalized in 1986. Patricia and their sons remained in Germany while Michael went back to the U.S. with Margaret and Martha 
moving back to North Carolina and legally adopting both of the girls. His sons actually ended up moving back to be with their father as well, and he started working as a columnist for the Durham Herald Sun newspaper, writing a lot about his time in the military, and he actually wrote three novels that were related to his service, also co-authoring two military biographies. He was doing pretty well as a writer at first, and even reportedly received a half a million dollar bonus for one of his books, but again, this is unconfirmed. In 1986, Margaret and Martha became friends with Caitlin Atwater, introducing their father to Kathleen Atwater. Him and Kathleen hit it off instantly and started dating very quickly. They were said to be completely in love and devoted to one another, as well as very dedicated to their children. In 1989, Kathleen and Caitlin moved in with Michael and the girls, and the couple finally married in 1996. Their family was fairly affluent, and they all lived in a 9,000-square-foot mansion in the Forest Hills neighborhood of Durham, North Carolina. They were also very well-known in their community and extremely loved by their many friends and family members. Unfortunately for the family, everything changed on December 9th of 2001, when at around 2.40 a.m., Michael called 911 to report that he had found Kathleen lying at the bottom of their back staircase. The 911 call is copyrighted, so I'm not going to be able to play the recording, but I have listened to it, so this is my personal interpretation. He did report on the phone to the dispatcher that Kathleen was still breathing, emphasizing this point several times. However, he did seem to have some odd reactions to the dispatcher's questions. For example, when the dispatcher asked how many stairs she had fallen down, the question was repeated to him multiple times before he quickly responded with, oh, fifteen twenty, I don't know. He did seem frantic on the call, however, he seemed thrown off by the dispatchers asking for additional information, only mentioning over and over that Kathleen was unconscious but still breathing. 911 calls are always really difficult to interpret because you can never narrow down how someone will respond in a crisis situation. However, there are a couple of strange things to note with this one in particular. First of all, he never mentions the amount of blood at the scene, even though there was a lot. And he keeps repeating that she is still breathing, which many have noted that he may have said this in order to set up for a cover-up. It's possible that he may have wanted to create the impression that he was calling right away after Kathleen fell. After the initial call, he did dial back at 2.46 a.m., telling the dispatcher then that she was not breathing any longer and begging them to hurry up with the ambulance, but this call was extremely brief, ending immediately as the dispatcher asked, quote, can you tell me for sure she's not breathing, end quote. Michael's son, Todd, was actually at a friend's house at the time, and he raced back to the home, arriving even before the first responders got there. And when the first responders did arrive, they immediately noticed that the scene was incredibly bloody for someone who had fallen down the stairs. Kathleen was lying face up, almost entirely on the floor outside of the staircase, and only her head was resting on the final stair. She was rushed to the hospital, but she died from her injuries at only 48 years old. From the scene, it did immediately seem like something was off. She hadn't fallen a great distance, and there was just an unfathomable amount of blood splattered on the walls and the steps and even on the bottom of her feet, which doesn't seem consistent with a fall down the stairs. She also had seven deep head lacerations, almost as if she had been hit by a light, rigid object. This could be explained by the fall, except for the fact that she had no bruises noted on her legs in the autopsy report. She also had a fracture in the cartilage on her neck, which indicates that an intense pressure had been applied to it. And investigators, as mentioned, were heavily suspicious of the scene, questioning Michael's involvement from the start. 
From Michael's account, the two had watched a movie that night and then went to relax by the pool with some drinks. At around 2 a.m., Kathleen decided to go back into the house, and Michael stayed out by the pool smoking his pipe until he went inside at around 2.40, immediately gathering that she fell down the stairs and calling the ambulance. Two wine glasses were found in the kitchen, which did serve to corroborate his version of events, but investigators went forward anyway with collecting evidence against Michael from the scene, and this was primarily blood evidence. On December 20th of 2001, he was charged with the murder of Kathleen. Almost no one, not even Michael, could believe that he had been arrested. Their friends, family, and especially their kids did not believe that he could have done anything to harm Kathleen, and he was released on an $850,000 bond after about a month in prison, but he wasn't allowed to travel outside of the state. Even his wallet and passport were taken from him. Michael's trial was set to begin in July of 2003, and it lasted about three months, with everyone around Michael still proclaiming his innocence at the beginning. Michael was represented by an attorney named David Rudolph, and their defense was based on the argument that Kathleen had mixed alcohol with Valium on that night, causing her to become disoriented and fall while she was walking up the stairs, and they put forth that she actually fell several times, repeatedly trying to get back up and slipping, which caused her to hit her head more than once. And just to touch on this, for anyone who has ever fallen walking up the stairs, you would know that your instinct is to fall forwards and catch yourself, but Kathleen was found with her feet facing away from the staircase at the bottom. Obviously, if she was impaired, that would play a role in how she responded to slipping on the staircase, however, it does seem like a suspicious detail. And in addition to that, Kathleen's blood alcohol was tested and found to be only 0.07%. They argued that the staircase was very dark and very narrow, and she was wearing flip-flops, all of which made for a dangerous situation. And the defense was assisted by Henry Lee, a blood spatter analyst, who concluded that her injuries were caused by an accidental fall, and that the volume of blood at the scene was irrelevant. He mentioned that Kathleen was likely coughing up blood, which would have explained the spatters on the walls. And Lee has been a factor on several high-profile cases, however, he does have a controversial reputation, and on this case, he even brought a bottle of ketchup to the courtroom to show what blood spatter from a cough would look like, which rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, and a lot of people thought it was very disrespectful to Kathleen. The prosecution completely disagreed with Michael's version of events, so now I'm going to dive into the bulk of the case against him. They called a blood spatter analyst to contest Henry Lee's testimony, whose name was Dwayne Deaver, working with the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation. He contended that the blood spatter on the walls was cast off from the repeated motion of lifting and lowering a murder weapon, rather than from Kathleen coughing up blood. There was also blood spatter found on Michael's shorts that Deaver believed was consistent with someone who had been in close proximity to Kathleen as she was being attacked. The blood evidence didn't end at the blood spatter analysis, however. There was also an expert who testified that it looked like somebody had tried to wipe up some of the blood at the scene. Additionally, there was a bloody shoe print on Kathleen's sweatpants that matched one of Michael's shoes, but when paramedics arrived on the scene, he was actually barefoot, and Michael was the only person there, so by his own account, he is the only one who could have left the print. A luminol test was also done on the scene that showed bare footprints walking around the house and backyard. And keep in mind that Michael contended that he had called police as soon as he found Kathleen lying on the ground, and that she was still alive when he called 911. However, when investigators arrived, the blood surrounding Kathleen had completely dried. 
The autopsy showed that the neurons in Kathleen's brain indicated she had been unconscious but alive for anywhere between 90 minutes and 2 hours before she died, and Michael had attested to the fact that he was only outside for 40 minutes without Kathleen, so that window of time completely contradicts his story. If she were lying there for an hour and a half, he would have already been inside, according to his own version of events. If Michael did attack Kathleen, this becomes especially disturbing considering the luminal test that showed someone walking around. Perhaps he was attempting to clean up the scene while Kathleen was still alive, avoiding calling for help while he was doing so. The medical examiner, Deborah Radish, actually ruled Kathleen's manner of death a homicide, and the official cause of death from the autopsy report was, quote, due to severe concussive injury of the brain caused by multiple blunt force impacts of the head. These injuries are inconsistent with a fall downstairs. Instead, they are indicative of multiple impacts received as a result of beating, end quote. In regards to the head lacerations and the neck injury, Deborah reaffirmed her findings and testified in court that, quote, the findings were unequivocal that this was not from a fall down the stairs, end quote. No matter how strange all of this seems, the burden of proof still lays with the prosecution, so they had to present their own version of events, starting with a murder weapon. They decided that the lacerations on Kathleen's head were most likely caused by a blowpoke from a fireplace, and the couple did own a custom blowpoke that was a gift from Kathleen's sister that was missing from the home. However, this was a difficult theory to present to the jury considering that her skull had not been fractured and considering that the prosecution was still missing the murder weapon. During court, the defense actually presented this blowpoke, claiming that it had been found by Michael's son in the home's garage, even though the garage had been searched by police several times. Forensic testing showed that the blowpoke hadn't been used in years, it actually had some spiderwebs on it, which negated the possibility that it was the murder weapon, which was a major roadblock for the prosecutors. However, I think this piece of evidence needs to be examined through the lens of how the defense handled it. The blowpoke was never processed by police, and there is no clear chain of custody before the defense revealed it in the courtroom, so it is at best unreliable. It is also possible that there was no murder weapon, and that if Michael did kill Kathleen, the blunt force trauma was caused by hitting her head against the stairs. The prosecution sought to paint Michael as an unreliable witness, pointing out a pattern of lying that went back several years. Michael had once attempted to run for mayor, and during his campaign, he said that he had been awarded two Purple Hearts during his time in the military, which was found to be completely untrue. He had earned a Silver Star and a Bronze Medal of Valor for his service, but no Purple Hearts. Remember that his injury was caused by a car accident unrelated to his service. And in court, Michael was asked about this, and he was quoted saying, quote, it's easier. It was just easier sometimes to let the lie come out, end quote. This established they then had to prove that he lied on the night that Kathleen died, so it was brought to the jury's attention that those wine glasses that had been left on the counter showed no evidence that Kathleen had ever touched them, and there were no traces of her fingerprints on them, suggesting that the scene had been staged. There was a lot of mounting evidence, but finding a motive seemed like a stretch for such a seemingly happy family, so the prosecution set out to poke holes in that narrative. Michael was revealed in court to be bisexual, and it was believed he was having an affair cheating on Kathleen with a man. Over 2,000 photos of men were found on his computer, as well as a conversation between Michael and a male escort. The two had been connected for about four months, and it was all online, 
but they had discussed meeting in person around the time that Kathleen died, and Michael even had printouts of these conversations in his desk. Now, obviously, this is highly prejudicial information to be revealing in court, and whether or not the information played a role in Kathleen's death, it likely swayed the minds of some people on the jury. On the night that she died, Kathleen had actually used Michael's computer to prep for a conference call that she had the next day, so it can't be confirmed whether or not she came across any of this, but even the threat of being exposed as a cheater could have been motive enough. Perhaps they got into a fight that turned violent. Michael refuted this, saying that Kathleen knew he was bisexual and okay with it. However, this doesn't speak to her being okay with him cheating on her, no matter who it was with. Kathleen's daughter, Caitlin, did attest to Michael having a quick temper, which could provide some context for this theory. However, in the interest of being fair to Michael, this is only one person's anecdotal account, and Michael's other daughters have never wavered in believing his innocence. They also put forth a financial motive. Michael and Kathleen were in about $143,000 worth of debt at the time. They were living month to month on credit cards, and Kathleen believed that she was close to losing her job. She was an executive for a telecommunications firm called Nortel, and her company had just laid off 45,000 people. Michael also hadn't had steady income from his writing for a while. Michael and Patricia's sons were also experiencing financial hardships, which Michael was keeping from Kathleen. And Kathleen had a massive life insurance policy, totaling an exact amount of $1,834,166. But if Michael had killed her to have claimed to that money, her death would have had to appear accidental. As a bit of an interesting note, the jury was actually brought to the Peterson house to view the staircase and the pool area during the trial in order to get an idea of the distance between those two places. And while they were there, the defense provided a demonstration that showed if Michael had been outside while Kathleen was falling, he wouldn't have been able to hear her calling for help from where he was. Despite this, the case for Michael's defense at this point is certainly looking pretty weak. However, there is a piece of this story that was almost a gotcha moment for me, and honestly, I don't believe there is much to be said in his defense in light of it. So for this, we are going to return to earlier in Michael's life when he was in Germany with ex-wife Patricia and spending time with Elizabeth and George Ratliff before they both passed away. Elizabeth had a sister named Margaret Blair, who decided to contact authorities after she heard about the circumstances of Kathleen's death and what she had to say came as a shock to everyone. According to Margaret, Michael walked Elizabeth home the night that she died, and he was seen by a neighbor later that night running away from the house. And the next morning, Elizabeth's dead body was discovered at the bottom of her staircase. She had lacerations to the back of her head that were eerily similar to Kathleen's. However, Elizabeth did have this blood clotting disorder that was ruled to have contributed to her death, she had been having headaches in the week leading up to her fall, and the medical examiner concluded that she had had a headache, become disoriented, and that was what caused her to fall down the stairs that night. So at the time, no one thought anything of it, even though the nanny who discovered Elizabeth's body reported that the scene was extremely bloody, that it was high up on the walls, and that a witness who cleaned up the scene afterwards reported it took many hours to do so. This was a major turning point in the case, and it seems that even Michael's supporters questioned how this could possibly be a coincidence. So Elizabeth's body was exhumed, a process which was actually approved by her daughters, who hoped that it would show Michael's innocence, and it was examined by Deborah Radish, the same medical examiner mentioned earlier, 
who concluded that Elizabeth's death was a homicide caused by blunt force trauma. Now, Michael has never faced any charges for this, but despite that, this information was allowed in court in order to establish a possible history. In discussing the case, the jury decided that they would approach a decision with the idea that the blowpoke was not the murder weapon and that they weren't going to consider Elizabeth Ratliff's death as a relevant detail. However, despite this, Michael Peterson was found guilty of first-degree murder on October 10th of 2003, and he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. And he was denied parole because the jury believed that the act was premeditated. So in cases when premeditation is a factor, the planning doesn't have to be days or even months in advance. It can take place up to even just a few seconds before the act itself. So this doesn't necessarily mean that he had been planning to murder Kathleen for any significant portion of time. And Michael's daughters were absolutely heartbroken by the news, and they appeared extremely emotional in the courtroom after the verdict was read out. However, Kathleen's daughter, Caitlin, had completely changed her mind about Michael by this time, believing that her mother's injuries were not caused by a fall down the stairs. Michael was still insistent on his innocence, so he began the appeals process, and in 2006, a court-appointed attorney argued that Michael hadn't been given a fair trial. This was denied, so this case went all the way up to the North Carolina Supreme Court in 2007, where the 2006 decision was upheld. Michael hired new attorneys in 2008 to file a motion for a new trial, and this was mostly to call into question the testimony of Dwayne Deaver, the blood spatter analyst who had originally testified for the prosecution. Michael's motion was denied in 2009, but questions about Deaver started to gain some traction after this. His lack of experience was brought to light, and the tactics that he used at trial were called into question as well. The Attorney General opened an investigation into Dwayne Deaver in 2010, and this internal audit discovered that Deaver and other members of the State Bureau of Investigations had repeatedly helped prosecutors prove their cases by misrepresenting or suppressing evidence at trials. Disturbingly, this was shown to have occurred in over 34 cases over a 16-year period, so there were a lot of people, certainly not just Michael, who had fallen victim to these deceits. One of the most important cases that Deaver testified for was the case of Greg Taylor, an innocent man who spent 19 years in prison after Deaver failed to report blood test results which would have swayed the case in Taylor's favor. And after all this came to light, it led to Deaver being fired in 2011. After everything with Dwayne Deaver happened, Michael's original attorney, David Rudolph, started to work with him again, actually deciding to take up the case pro bono. Because of Deaver's testimony, a judge ruled that Michael did not receive a fair trial, thus granting him a new one, and Michael was released on house arrest on December 16th of 2011 on a $300,000 bail. As far as his first trial not being fair, it is interesting to note that the judge from Michael's original trial has since been quoted saying, quote, There were things that I would have changed. I think over time the introduction of the death in Germany was very prejudicial to the defendant, end quote, which I do think is a fair evaluation. This was absolutely the right decision based on the sheer number of cases that Deaver had presented false evidence in. However, it doesn't negate any of the other evidence that had been brought to light against Michael. His new trial was scheduled for May of 2017, but the case never actually went to trial as Michael decided to accept an Alford plea, pleading guilty to voluntary manslaughter in February of 2017. According to Cornell Law, an Alford plea is also known as a best interests plea, 
registering a formal claim of neither guilt nor innocence towards the charges brought against someone. So the defendant accepts all the ramifications of a guilty verdict without having to admit any criminal offense. In other words, Michael admitted that there was enough evidence to convict him, yet maintained that he was innocent. After pleading to voluntary manslaughter, Michael was sentenced to a maximum of 86 months in prison. However, because he had already served 89, he was released for time served, and as of today, Michael is a free man. There is an alternate theory in this case presented by Michael himself, which stems from a neighbor's testimony that they found a tire iron lying outside of the home. The idea here is that perhaps someone else had come into the home, killed Kathleen, and dropped the weapon outside before fleeing, and this is largely based on the idea that there wasn't enough room in the stairway for Michael to beat Kathleen with the blowpoke. I take issue with this theory personally because nothing else in the house had been touched. Remember, this is a huge mansion, a prime example of a target for robbery. That in mind, why would someone come into the home, murder Kathleen for seemingly no reason, and leave without taking anything? Something about that scenario doesn't add up. It's also odd that he would even suggest it, being that he was so adamant that Kathleen had simply fallen down the stairs. There is a documentary on Netflix about this case, which is how many people have become so fascinated by it. The documentary is called The Staircase, and it was produced by director Jean Xavier de Lestrade, first debuting in 2004. It closely follows Michael Peterson's life and the defense team as they went through the trial process. After all of his years following the case, Dillestrade had the following to say about Michael. Quote, Michael Peterson himself is a very strange, very complex character. Of course, the man I spent many days, weeks, months, and years with, the man I know, it's like it's not possible that he's capable of killing someone in that way. But human beings are so strange, and you never know. End quote. That being said, Lestrade does strongly believe that if Peterson's sexuality had not come up at trial, the prosecution may not have gone after him at all, which is an interesting point to consider. And this documentary was supposed to be on bias, but many people believe that it had a significant lean towards trying to show Michael's innocence, and it has come to light that Michael began a relationship with one of the editors during the filming process, Sophie Brunette, which lasted until May 2017, which is not too long after he regained his freedom. This 15-year relationship was never mentioned during The Staircase, so keep that in mind if you choose to watch it that there is a heavy possibility that bias worked its way into the editing process. The documentary is so often referenced in connection with this case that I would like to add one final quote from De La Strade where he explains, quote, When he, Michael, was talking about Kathleen, I really felt that he was very sincere about their relationship, about the love they shared, but at the same time, I kind of formed an intuition that there was something else. I'm not saying he was guilty, but I had a feeling there was something else. End quote. All of this leads us to some final thoughts that I would like to offer regarding this controversial case. In my opinion, the evidence against Michael, especially the blood evidence at the scene, is much too overwhelming to overlook. Regardless of how it may have been misrepresented at trial, Michael still had blood spatter on his shorts, and the fact that someone had attempted to wipe up the scene, considering Michael places himself alone in the house, is much too suspicious. I can't attest to his motives, especially considering Kathleen cannot present her own version of events, and if there were problems in the relationship, the opportunity to know about them died with her on that night. I just keep returning to the death of Elizabeth Ratliff and the eerie similarities between those two events. If Michael had a hand in ending the lives of both women, the fact that he now walks free is heartbreaking for both of them, 
and I don't believe that either got the justice that they deserve. Michael is certainly outwardly charismatic and likable, but that can never speak to what lies below the surface, and among the many twists and turns in this case, I do believe that he is guilty of murdering Catherine Peterson. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Crime Bistro Podcast. And if you are interested in learning more about this fascinating case, all the sources I used will be linked in the show notes at crimebistro.com. If you have an opinion of your own to share, be sure to visit the podcast on YouTube to leave a comment or join us on Instagram at crimebistropodcast for some behind-the-scenes look at the exciting cases to come. With that being said, this week's story is coming to a close. So again, thank you for listening, and as always, until next time.